One focus, one subject. Welcome to The Real Story, the podcast that brings together global experts to explain one issue shaping the news. BBC World Service podcasts are supported by advertising. You're listening to The Real Story with me, Celia Hatton. This week... I'm uh, at the foot of the ladder. The lamb footbeds are only uh, depressed in the surface about uh, one or two inches. Very fine-grained as you get close to it. It's almost like a powder. I'm going to step off the lamb now. That's one small step for man. One Yes, you've guessed it. We're talking about that jaw-dropping moment when a human stepped foot on the moon for the first time. This month, in 1969, Neil Armstrong became the first person to do so, a feat that's only been repeated by 11 others since. It was a culmination of human and technological achievement. Today, we'll discuss the implications of the Apollo space program, How did it change the technology we use on Earth, from military advancements to medicine? And 50 years on, how is China's own moon landing advancing beyond that first American accomplishment? Is the U.S. losing its leadership role to countries like China, India, and Russia? Or, as some argue, is this kind of space exploration, putting humans into space, a total waste of resources? We're now in the Science Museum in London, It's holding a series of special events to celebrate the 50th anniversary of the Apollo mission. And with me is the museum's space curator, Doug Millard. So, Doug, can you describe what we have here? Well, we're standing next to a real spaceship. It's been around the moon. It's the Apollo 10 command module. It's the only part of that mission which came back to Earth with three astronauts inside 50 years ago. This was the dress rehearsal mission for (laughs) Apollo 11. Of course, Apollo 11 went that little bit further and landed on the moon. Wow, incredible. So why why do you have it in your possession? Why is it here in London and not somewhere in the United States? Well, we are indeed very fortunate indeed. This is the only Apollo spacecraft outside the US. It's on loan to the Science Museum from the National Air and Space Museum of the Smithsonian Institution. So as you said, it was in use 50 years ago. What else are you doing at the museum to mark the anniversary? Well, we have a whole bundle of events going on and activities. Uh, We should mention some of the other display items. We have a piece of the moon that was picked up on the Apollo 15 mission, just down in the space gallery. We have a Soyuz spacecraft. It's the Soyuz which took Tim Peake, Yuri Malenchenko and Tim Kopra into space back in 2015. That's just down the way in the space gallery. Uh, We have a, a Mercury spacecraft behind us. It's the Structural Thermal Model to make sure the flight model survives its journey to Mercury, which it's doing at the moment. It will take seven years to get there. Activities, we uh, launch our own rockets. We have something that investigates the smells of the solar system. As you're talking, I can see museum visitors walking behind and they're all kind of stopping and really looking. What is it about space? What is it about this anniversary that really gets people's imaginations going? I think it depends what age you are. So for some of us, we can remember it. We can remember watching it on television. For others, the younger generation, it's almost a sense of disbelief. What? We really went to the moon 50 years ago in something that looked like that? Because that doesn't really look like a spacecraft, not to the younger eyes. So there's a a realisation that actually 
we did some amazing things 50 years ago. And before then, of course, thinking of Soyuz, we had the, all the Soviet achievements. The first spacecraft, 1957, Sputnik 1. First man in space, Yuri Gagarin, 1961. First woman in space, Valentina Tereshkova. So um, lots of things to think about, and many people are learning about these historic achievements for the first time. That was Doug Millard, space curator at the Science Museum in London. He's now with me in our London studio. And also joining us, we have Alexandra Losk, a historian and author of Moon Art Science Culture. Down the line from Rhode Island, I'm joined by Joan Johnson Fries, Professor of National Security Affairs at the U.S. Navy War College. And from the Kennedy Space Center in Florida, I'm joined by Professor Pablo de Leon. He's the director of the Human Spaceflight Laboratory at the University of North Dakota. Uh, I want to start by asking each one of you a question. Uh, we'll, we'll start with you, Dr. Uh, Johnson Fries. What is your strongest memory from that point in 1969 when Neil Armstrong first walked on the moon? Well, admitting that, yes, I remember it well. I was in high school. We had a pool party with all my friends, and we got out of the pool and stood around the TV, and we watched Neil Armstrong's historic step, and we cheered, and then we got back in the pool. And it was magnificent, and it was part of our lives. Space had become a very integral part of our lives. Pablo de Leon, let's turn to you. What did that moment in 1969 mean to you? Uh, For me, it was a pivotal moment for my life. I, I was a child. I'm from Argentina. I was living in a farm about 100 kilometers from Buenos Aires, and my parents woke me up because it was at night. They woke me up, and I, I watched Neil Armstrong and, and uh, Aldrin walking on the moon, and I remember it's one of my most vivid memories, probably one of the ones that uh, sent me to the direction of uh, working in, in space technology. Alexandra Lusk, was was it was it super important for you as well? Well, I was only just born, so I don't remember it. For me, the moon is important because it's one of the most recognizable and most universal motifs in culture in painting, in literature, in poetry. So that's what I'm particularly interested in. And Doug Miller, let's let's circle back to you. What did that point in 1969. What's your strongest memory from that time when Neil Armstrong walked on the moon? Well, I remember being allowed to stay up late. I was watching this with my my parents. Uh, I think my brother was away from home at the time. And uh, I was allowed to stay up to uh, watch the landing. And I remember watching actually what was not a very good picture on our old black and white television set but also being able to see the moon through the window at the same time, switching between the two and thinking, my goodness me, this is this is actually happening. Well, before we go much further, I think we should acknowledge, though, that humans have been fascinated with the moon throughout human history. Alexandra, you're our moon historian. What's the earliest recorded drawing or writing that, that references the moon? Have all cultures shown equal fascination with it? I think humans have always had that special connection with the moon and for very obvious reasons. It is the most visible object in the sky apart from the sun. And the big difference is, of course, that we can look at the moon. It's another world, but it, it is almost reachable. And that has been there as well in human culture. That idea, that wish, that drive to get there. In very early poetry, in the classics, there's always that talk about how do we get there, when will we get there, 
there, what will be there. Okay, well, let's zero in on that point when humans walked on the moon. And just to emphasize what a scientific feat this was, let's hear from Harrison Schmidt. He was one of three astronauts on board Apollo 17, and he's the most recent living person to have walked on the moon. A few years ago, he told his story to the BBC. I was strolling on the moon one day in a very, very month of December. Now, May. May. May is the month. May, that's right. May is the year of the month. The physical feeling of being on the moon was very much like walking around on a giant trampoline. Uh, You're only one-sixth your weight because uh, the one-sixth Earth's gravity that the moon has. The uh, muscles that you have are just as strong as when you left the Earth. So it is very much like a large trampoline that you uh, are walking around on. I found that running across the surface of the moon was best accomplished for me by using a cross-country skiing technique uh, that allowed me to uh, push off the surface, glide just above the surface on a long stride, and then do another toe push as I uh, came back down on that uh, lunar surface. We'd like to dedicate the first steps of Apollo 17 to all those who made it possible. I came out here, oh my golly! Unbelievable. Uh, The valley where we landed was only about seven kilometers wide, deeper than the Grand Canyon. The mountains on either side rise to elevations of of, uh, 2,100 meters, 2,000 meters, uh, really uh, quite remarkable in their appearance. The uh, sun is illuminating those mountains uh, and the walls of the valley quite brilliantly. And the, uh, of course, the unusual aspects of of being in that valley was that you could see the earth uh, over the southwestern mountains and the sky was black. It was black because there's no atmosphere on the moon, but that still, uh, even though we knew it would be black, is uh, something that's a little hard to get used to, to have a brilliant sun and a black sky. And of course, uh, for three excursions out of the lunar module, we were trying to find out what was there. And in many Cases were quite surprised by it. And also uh, around one of the craters, uh, we uh, did, in in fact, find uh, uh, volcanic glass, material that had been erupted about three and a half billion years ago. It is a material that just in the last couple of years, advanced analytical techniques have discovered contains water, uh, lunar water, uh, not water from anywhere else. And as we leave the moon and Taurus Littrell, we leave as we came, and God willing, as we shall return. That was the astronaut Harrison Schmidt speaking to the BBC. Uh, Pablo de Leon, I'm, I'm curious to hear your thoughts. Um, it's hard to overstate how high the stakes were for those first astronauts, for, for, for Neil Armstrong and Buzz Aldrin to make it to the moon. Can you put this into context for us, what that achievement really meant? You have to consider that uh, just eight years before of the Apollo 11 mission, the United States had practically zero experience in humans in space. When President Kennedy announced what was going to become the national goal of putting people on the moon before the end of the decade, the United States had only 15 minutes of experience of uh, human spaceflight, which was the suborbital flight of Halo Shepard. All this technology had to be created in just eight years. 
some of the estimates that I read about the possibility of making it to the moon in the Apollo 11 flight shows that there were a 50% chance of making it successfully to the surface. The stakes were very, very high at, at that time. And we have to remember the technology of the 60s. You know, nowadays we feel so confident with our smartphones and our computers and everything. And when you look at the computers and the navigational aids that the astronauts took with them to the moon, it's just amazing that they were able to do it, you know. Joan Johnson Fries. What resources did the U.S. government have to pour into NASA to make this happen? Are there any ways that we can make a modern-day comparison? It's important to remember that the Apollo program was part of the Cold War effort. It was as much part of a, a Cold War tool as any tank or plane. And so Apollo was accomplished with a basically what's called a fenced budget. It was not subject to the nickel and dime bureaucratic fighting that goes on with most bureaucracies. So NASA was born under very different circumstances than most bureaucracies where it was getting money faster almost that it could spend it initially. That changed later in the program. But there's a great story about the NASA administrator asking his best people, his accountants, his engineers to estimate the cost And he got the first estimate and he sent it back and he said, no, do it again. And they came back with a higher estimate. And he actually sent them back twice. And when he walked out the door and they gave them final estimate, when he went before Congress, he doubled it to about $25 And that's about what the Apollo program came in on those days. So doing these space feats, these magnificent um, technological feats, costs a lot of money. And I think trying to do an Apollo program or an Apollo-like program today when space exploration is no longer considered part of a national security program, but more of a science and exploration program, NASA is now being asked to do the same kind of space spectaculars, but on a much different type of budgetary footing which makes it difficult, if not impossible, with the kind of timelines that people are now suggesting. Doug Millard, I I can see you nodding as Joan Mm. Johnson Fries is talking. Just how touch and go was it during that Apollo 11 mission? Was it really that uncertain that they would be able to reach their destination and also make it off the moon? There was a confidence that it could be done, but there was no guarantee that that was be what happened. Yeah, and I, and I think they landed with like 18 seconds or 16 seconds of fuel left. Or That's right, yeah, yeah. pretty scary. Yeah. It's interesting to contrast because we've heard that they had confidence, they had a massive budget behind them, but at the same time, they really had very little experience. It, it, they only had eight years to kind of build up to that moment. That, that, that contrast is, is, is di- a difficult one to grasp, I think. Generally, in that century, in the 20th century, I think proper flight had only just started, so 60-odd years earlier. And then by 69, we made it to the moon. What an incredible achievement. Yes, it was definitely political. It was part of the Cold War. Who gets there first? So, And the moon is hugely symbolic in so many ways. It stands for so many things. So to get there first was clearly uh, one of the main driving points. We didn't have to go there. But because we could, we wanted to. And then uh, what it meant to the nation who would get there first was is something that is perhaps now 
comprehensible again when it seems to be being stirred up again by some world leaders. Well, let's carry on with that idea. For now, a reminder that you're listening to The Real Story from the BBC World Service with me, Celia Hatton. This week, we're looking at the significance of the first moon landing 50 years ago. We've already touched a bit on how the moon landing affected politics at the time, and we'll talk more about that. But in this part of the program, let's get away from politics a bit. What are the other benefits that moon exploration brought for all of us on Earth? Pablo Delion, what were the scientific benefits that we've derived uh, from that first Apollo program? Well, there was a a great deal of knowledge about uh, the characteristics of the moon, of the soil, of of the of the environment. We we couldn't get at that time a clear uh, understanding of how the moon uh, was formed, and scientists are still debating uh, about that uh, even today. It mainly served, uh, in my opinion, as an engineering test bed where we were able to test systems. Uh, and test uh, equipment and to test tools that were supposed to be continued with a post-Apollo lunar program that never materialized uh, because the the budget was cut short. But you have to remember that the goal was to reach the moon. Uh, So Apollo 11 was just mainly about getting your boots into the soil and then the later missions... uh, I would probably say Apollo 14, uh, 15, 16, and 17 were a little bit more into the scientific purpose. Pablo, you're an expert in the design of spacesuits, and I've heard often that that the materials uh, that are used, that were developed uh, for use in those kinds of suits, really have helped us back on Earth. Is that the case? Well, there were a number of uh, what is NASA calls spin-offs, inventions and discoveries that come from the space technology and and make uh, easier uh, our life here on Earth. Uh, and there were a number of materials that were developed or were tested during the uh, the Apollo program, and, and a number of of, uh, of fabrics and uh, different textiles and and different plastics and, and metal alloys. I can't remember if any of them was the direct um, was developed under Apollo funding, but uh, certainly it was utilized there. There were a number of developments in uh, in uh, digital computers, of course, because the the Apollo AGC, the computer that guided the astronauts to Apollo, was developed with the Massachusetts Institute of Technology, and and that helped to improve digital computing uh, later. You know, I I, I try to 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 make a difference. To me, it is like. Uh, when the first European sailors came back from America and they said, well, what do you have to show us? And they said, okay, this is a tomato and this is, uh, I don't know, uh, corn or whatever. And those are the things that we discover. And, and this is enough to finance this operation. And, you know, I think that that's understating the importance of what the moon landing was. I think that we went to explore in a completely different world and, and the benefits that we will take from it uh, are way bigger than any Velcro or any, uh, <laughs> any other uh, material that we can get uh, from the space program. 
I would I would like to add that on a, on a much more mundane level, all the space missions had some an indirect beneficial effect on people because I remember walking around with moon boots in the 1970s as a child. So, so space travel kept a lot of uh, children's feet warm and dry. And it also helped promote the miniskirt and new shiny materials. So it was hugely influential on fashion. It's completely unscientific, of course. And on a wider note, did it affect how we view our place in the universe? Culturally, what were the benefits that came from this? Symbolically, what that meant, putting that footprint on the surface of another world, cannot be underestimated. And I think that was probably one of the main reasons why we went and why... Nobody was really that concerned about the direct scientific benefits or or, or outcomes of it, which also made it harder to go back. And, of course, the Apollo missions stopped uh, at 17. I think more were planned because budget were cuts because we had done it. A hugely symbolic act. So now it's really interesting how to to justify it. Uh, And I guess it would be using the moon as something else, either as a base or as a stepping stone to somewhere else. And we're certainly going to circle back to that in, in, in the second half of the program. Uh, Doug Millard, how would you rate the, 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 the scientific outcomes from the, the, the Apollo program? Thinking that the science of the moon, we, we've certainly learnt a lot. As was said earlier, we're still you know, debating on how exactly the moon was formed, although I believe the favoured theory is currently that it was part of Earth many years ago, many, many years ago. So we've learned a lot more about the moon. Harrison Schmidt, in the piece you played, referred to the, the lunar water, which was quite a discovery. As regards the supporting technology, then again, uh, Pablo mentioned it briefly, the Apollo program really pump-primed the in- integrated circuit industry. That was just getting going in the 60s and it was Apollo more than anything else which really drove it and enabled the companies to uh, improve their their products. Just getting back to the cultural aspect though, I'm minded of the, uh, of the images of Earth and Apollo 8, so that was the first mission which actually left Earth and returned the, 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 the pictures, the Earthrise pictures. And that legacy seems to have grown with the years they seem to have gathered more and more significance, whereas the actual moon landing perhaps is now very much a part of history. But the Earth is just more and more relevant, those pictures of of our planet. I think it's interesting to note that while I, I do see renewed interest in space from many different perspectives with the new space companies and the Space Force and, and all that, I'm not at all sure that the American public would be upset if the next voice transmission from the moon were in Mandarin. I ask people to name an Apollo astronaut, and they can, but ask them to name a current astronaut. It's very rare that they can. Part of the American public, or part of the public in general, has become almost blasé about space. Okay, well, let's talk about that in the second half of the program. And just to remind you, you're listening to a podcast edition of The Real Story from the BBC World Service, this week looking at the 50th anniversary of the moon landing. Each week we tackle a different topic and you can download the program every Friday. I encourage you to subscribe so you won't miss an edition. And there are also many other BBC World Service podcasts to choose from. You could try Witness, our history series told by the people who were there. First-hand accounts of some of the most important events which have helped to shape our lives and the places we live. There are five podcasts a week and an incredible archive to delve into. 
And please let us know what you think of this podcast from The Real Story or any ideas for topics you'd like us to look into. You can email us at our email address, therealstory at bbc.co.uk. And now let's get back to this edition of The Real Story with me, Celia Hatton, looking at the future of space exploration. Mars next, possibly. To answer the big questions, we're joined by Alexandra Losk. She's a historian and the author of Moon Art Science Culture. Doug Millard, the space curator at the Science Museum in London. Down the line from Rhode Island, I'm joined by Joan Johnson Fries, Professor of National Security Affairs at the U.S. Navy War College. And from the Kennedy Space Center in Florida, I'm joined by Professor Pablo De Leon. He's the director of the Human Spaceflight Laboratory at the University of North Dakota. Now, before we go any further, let's hear from the President of the United States, the man who wields a lot of control over NASA's budget. Here is Donald Trump at an Independence Day rally last week. Exactly 50 years ago this month, the world watched in awe as Apollo 11 astronauts launched into space with a wake of fire and nerves of steel and planted our great American flag on the face of the moon. Half a century later, we are thrilled to have here tonight the famed NASA flight director who led mission control during that historic endeavor, the renowned Gene Kranz. Gene, I want you to know that we're going to be back on the moon very soon, and someday soon we will plant the American flag on Mars. It's happening, Gene. It's happening. President Trump has not just been talking about returning to the moon and sending a manned mission to Mars. He's also been talking about creating a space force, a new branch of the U.S. military probably fair to say that the reaction to this has been mixed. So let's unpick some of this in the next few minutes. How much of what we hear about future space exploration is rhetoric and how much is a reflection of a real attempt to go beyond the moon? Doug Millard, is Mars the inevitable next destination? What does that entail? Oh, there's a good question. Uh, I fear it is not inevitable. If we remember what Jack Kennedy said all those years ago in 61, he said, we're going to do these things because they're hard. Going to the moon was very hard. It was very expensive. Going to Mars will be orders of magnitude, more expensive and more difficult. We'll get there one day, but I wouldn't like to predict when that day will be. Pablo Delion, how difficult is it to reach Mars? Well, it's, uh, it's uh, like uh, Doug was saying, it's tremendously difficult here is a problem of distance, and if our hardware will be able to hold during a transit between the Earth and Mars on the order of one year, plus the time that the crew will remain on the planet, that probably will be in the order of six months, plus another year to return to Earth. So you're roughly talking of a mission that will be a minimum of 2.5 years that was never attempted before to to have hardware and the astronauts who will be taking part of this mission. So it's very, very hard to do. The official numbers for NASA planners are saying now 2030 to 2033. I don't know right now if that's going to happen with NASA but I have been also looking very carefully the private companies such as SpaceX or Blue Origin. And uh, chances are that the first boots on Mars may be theirs, not a government agency. 
I agree that it will likely be a private company that reaches Mars first because I don't think a government program can be funded to the degree necessary to do it within the time frame that has been set out. NASA is now a bureaucracy that has to fight for every dollar it gets, and that means not accepting too much risk. And there's technical risk, there's political risk, there's economic risk. And so NASA has become quite risk averse. And the private companies are where you now see uh, the new technologies being developed. I think in the United States, our emphasis is increasingly on the potential space force, which has now been more or less officially downgraded to a space core. We spend as much money or more, and I think it is likely significantly more, on military and intelligence programs, space programs, than we do on NASA. The reason is the vast majority of space technology is dual use, meaning of value to the civilian and military communities. And the military has benefited significantly from all the technology that was developed during Apollo, the computational analysis, the materials development, the computer technology. And um, the United States has a very robust and very aggressive military space program. And now that other countries are developing technology that was once privy only to the United States, it's seen as very threatening. And a lot of money is going into uh, what I refer to as building technology to protect technology. You mention other countries, and I think this is a good point to bring in India. Now, India has its own unmanned probe, which has been orbiting Mars since 2014, and will hopefully answer a lot of questions about the planet. Minal Rohit is an Indian space engineer who worked on India's Mars Orbiter mission. Here she is telling the BBC about it. I'm a system integration engineer. My basic role is that I have to integrate various subsystems and characterize, calibrate and test it till the launch and even after the launch. So I have to ensure that none of the systems go wrong at any time and they give the desired specified output. For Mars Orbiter mission, I can say that I had nonstop work 18 hours and I could feel that thrill because once you are in that room, you literally get uh, like your, your numbness in your hands and it goes chill and then you feel that, okay, everything should go well. I was like keeping my fingers crossed. And then when they separated like at the correct place and it was injected in the orbit, then we took, okay, now this is first step is over. So almost our mission was like 60% success once it was injected. Everybody was like screaming with the joy and like they, we, we used to keep looking at the telemetry data. Then we are just seeing, okay, velocity is increasing, increasing, increasing. Now it should reduce. That lamp has fired. Now it should reduce. And we are praying, please reduce, please reduce. And then it reduced. That clap, when it happened, actually tears rolled out of my eyes. And that too, an RPM, uh, Mr. Narendra Modi, and he gave such a motivational speech that I could not uh, stop my tears coming out. Well, there has been another lunar first this year. We have to note that the Chinese space program also accomplished a first. Joan johnson Fries, can you talk us through what China has accomplished this year? Well, the event this year was landing on uh, the far side, the Chinese going to the far side of the moon, uh, which is part of their as yet still unofficial but 
clearly intended plan to eventually have a human program to go to the moon and beyond. They have their Shenzhou Human Spaceflight Program, which was originated in 1992, indicating their willingness to take their time, much different approach than the Americans did during the Apollo program. And they have their Chengyi Robotic Lunar Program. And it is highly expected that when the two are both successful, they will be combined and uh, they will officially announce a human spaceflight program to the moon. And they've laid out their human spaceflight plans in very clear, deliberate ways. It's a three-part program. The first part to demonstrate human spaceflight, the second part to demonstrate advanced capabilities, and the third to have a large, permanently manned space station in orbit. And I think the Chinese are taking a very different approach. It's I've often compared it as the tortoise and the hare with the United States, the uh, the hare, when we're good, we're very, very good. Apollo was certainly was an example of American exceptionalism at its best. With the Chinese, the slow, persistent hare being very prudent in their plans, but they learned a lot from our Apollo program. They learned to work incrementally. They learned further up. They started further up the learning curve, but they are determined not to go look around, say, been there, done that, and come home as we did. They are using the moon as a stepping stone for continued exploration out to Mars and potentially beyond. But it's important to note as well, space technology is very difficult. It is the Chinese program doesn't have better technology than the United States or other programs. In fact, it's very Spartan compared to uh, some technologies. What they have is persistence and political will to do this. Whereas I think the United States from Apollo has been really fighting for a reason to be that is significant enough to get the funding needed to carry on and follow through with the plans that are announced. Pablo de Leon, what do you make of the Chinese technical accomplishment? Well, what I believe is is that at least in the beginning, it was heavily borrowed from uh, other nations, in particular from Russia. If you look at the Shenzhou spacecraft and you look at the Soyuz spacecraft, the Russian Soyuz, they are very much alike. So they were able to benefit from the most reliable technology that was around. And if you look at their spacesuits, which is one of my areas, the intravehicular suits that uh, China uses, or even the extravehicular suits, the Feitian, are practically, I didn't want to say a copy, but I just said it, so, uh, of, of the Russian design. So they, you know, and I, I think that's a great move, and uh, that helps them to save time, to save money, and get there, you know, with a reliability and with a, a lot of lessons learned that uh, I think, you know, it makes sense for the program. They can plan for 50 years, while here in the United States, we can barely plan for four. I think it is important also to point out the Chinese public is very excited about what they're doing in space, much like the public was excited about the Apollo program in the 60s. So they have this impetus to keep going forward 
And uh, I think their approach is going to be one that keeps them going forward rather than having to fight the battle every four to eight years for what are we doing and why are we doing it. Alexandra? It's, it's actually fascinating to see this now. I wasn't around in the 60s to witness this, this utter fascination, yes, for political reasons, but following the space race and seeing who got there first. And now I see this excitement again, which wasn't there when I was young. In the 80s and the early 90s, there wasn't great interest in space science. And I mean, there were, there were disasters that were setbacks with the Challenger. Remember that very vividly. But seeing that now, seeing the Chinese excitement about this is really interesting. And what's also interesting is that in Chinese culture, the moon is hugely important. It has a lot of positive, a lot of negative associations. And of course, they are calling the whole mission after a moon deity. So they're, they're linking it to their culture and their history. So are we entering the era of a new space race? We have India mentioned there. We've talked about China. We've talked about the United States. Uh, we've mentioned Russia here and there. If it's a new space race, who are the competitors and what's the objective? Well, I mean, listening to uh, President Trump makes you think it is probably mainly rhetoric, but also anything coming from the President of the United States, of course, is a tricky one because let us not forget, they will only be in power for a maximum of eight years. So it is very easy to come up with these very emotive statements, capturing people's imagination, just putting yourself out there. And I think somebody like Trump is very aware of that. He will not live to see us land on Mars, of course, so he can say anything he likes. I think it's the aspect of private money and of those other nations that will become very interesting. But the the question again is, why are we doing it? Is it about wanting to achieve this, leaving a mark on yet another world? And are we talking about a race? Is this just kind of a false setup that I'm proposing? Is there actually some kind of new race? Is this really just a political setup by certain politicians, including Donald Trump? Or is there actually a technological race going on between the US or China or perhaps NASA and private companies? Yeah, I think we can't pretend that what happened in the 60s is going to be repeated. It will never be repeated. And why is that? Because of the conditions. It was, as was said earlier, it was part of the Cold War. We should also remember that it came not that long after the uh, the Second World War. Kennedy was challenging the United States to beat the Soviets in some way uh, to show that it was a better system. And he felt confident, and of course he was quite right, that the United States industrial might and its ability to organise massive programmes, rather like the Manhattan Project, which was essentially an industrial project, would triumph, and indeed it did. Those days have gone. I suspect there could be something of a race involving the private players. SpaceX has demonstrated what it is capable of doing. Very impressive achievements indeed. So who knows if that trajectory continues, then who knows what might happen? Hmm. I think it would have to capture the imagination of people in a similar way. Otherwise, there there just won't be as much backing. And will it do that? Does Mars have the same appeal that the moon has? I wonder. Joan Johnson-Fries, I wonder, are races useful because they drive us forward? This idea of competition, is it useful? Well, I think there definitely is a space race between China and India for prestige that they hope will translate into regional leadership. And 10 years ago, India very proudly said that they were not going to spend money 
on human spaceflight because that was the purview of rich countries and they were going to spend money on space programs that would directly benefit their people. But then China started getting a lot of attention and they decided suddenly, yes, they were going to have a human spaceflight program as well. But both China and India are also using the space technology development overall to develop military space capabilities, which they hope will secure their their regional security and their place as a great power status, which we are back in the, the politics of great power competition. Most of what China is doing in space also has value to their military space program. If you develop tracking systems for a human spaceflight program, those tracking systems can also track missiles. So you get a lot of strategic benefit for every dollar spent on space. And China and India are acutely aware of that. Whether the United States is in a race to go back to the moon, I often wonder why we would get in a race that we've already won and get in again with the potential of losing. I think, again, the aspirational rhetoric from President Trump about being back on the moon and on to Mars soon doesn't have a budget to match it. You pose an interesting question, because if, if the U.S. perspective is why get in a race that we've already won, or if some in the, in the United States are, are asking that question, why not just collaborate then? What is stopping the United States? What is stopping NASA from collaborating with countries like China or, or collaborating more closely with India? Well, it does collaborate with India. And in fact, it was very useful in their uh, their Mars program. But the answer to why aren't we collaborating with China is politics. Great power competition is back in vogue. And we have the United States has actively taken a position of not working with China. China very much wanted to be part of the space station, what the international family of spacefaring nations that was represented on the space station. And the United States aggressively vetoed that. One congressman got a one sentence inserted into the NASA budget authorization a few years ago, which basically prohibits NASA from working with China on a bilateral basis. We can work with them on certain issues like space debris, but politics is what has stopped collaboration with China in particular. Pablo de Leon, do you agree? Has, has politics stopped collaboration? Well, certainly it's the case with, with China. We even if, for example, if we have to work in a certain project and there is a Chinese national, we are not allowed to work with that person, even if he's completely qualified for the job, because this requirement that uh, Dr. Johnson Reese was was referring to. So that that certainly hampers collaboration. I think has been a, a, a big mistake to not allow China to become a part of the International Space Station. I think that was a, a wrong move. Now, with the case of India, I went to I was in the in their. Um, in their space center in Shiharikota like seven years ago, and they showed me the place where they were going to put together the launch pad for their human space program. And they said, well, this is where we're going to build our rocket. And it was, it was absolutely amazing that they had everything figured out and they were already working in the spacecraft and doing all that. And many people, of course, in India see it as a, as a waste of money, but that's a problem that all the countries. Now, going back to the collaboration, 
for example, in the new spacecraft that NASA is putting together, the Orion, the service module is made by ESA, by the European Space Agency. So there is some collaboration on this exploration approach that NASA is uh, doing. I think it could be uh, improved and more nations could be part of it. Just recently, Canada also joined the Artemis project. So, you know, it's, it's moving in that direction. But, of course, there are, there are a lot of political hurdles. There are political hurdles. Uh, and there are a lot of critics who say, look, we shouldn't be spending our money on manned space programs, aside from the political benefits that come from putting humans into space, from those, those television pictures that dominate our imaginations. Where should the money be spent if we're purely focused on scientific discovery? Well, there's a long-raging debate between various sectors of the of the space um, the space players uh, whether you should have human space flight or whether you should put more money into robotic planetary exploration. Um, I why, don't. Yeah, why is human space flight necessary? <clears throat> well, that's a very good question, and you could argue that it's more expensive because of all the um, life support systems required. You don't have to worry about uh, so much about a robotic spacecraft that may fail, that won't involve lives being lost. However, there is something about the human being venturing out into space which captures the imagination of many. It is something to do with how we view ourselves and our place in space. Uh, so it's very much a, uh, it's an issue of, of humanity and how it perceives itself. And so, again, thinking back to Apollo, it was those pictures of Earth which perhaps tend to resonate down the ages as much as anything. It's kind of about us. Now, the friend of mine often says, nobody throws a parade for a robot. <laughs> <laughs> I would completely agree. Uh, I think where we are in, in relation to space, in particular the moon, of course, but also other, other celestial bodies, where we are and what it means to us and how much we're part of that runs through human culture from those early cave paintings, markings on stones and whatever, all the way up to the present day and what artists and writers and poets are doing now and, and the moon's frequently described as a mirror and it is of course it, you know a mirror of ourselves and to come back to the sort of scientific outputs that's what we've learned that it is probably part of us we're probably from the same origin so yes the human factor is important and of course using robot robots and robotics only would mean that the impact will be far less than than it was during the Apollo missions. Well, let's head towards our last question for each one of our guests. And it's this. If you were the head of a space program, for example, you had control over NASA's entire $20.1.5 billion budget, what would be your top priority for space exploration if you had to pick one thing? Uh, Pablo Delian, let's, let's start with you. Well, NASA was an agency that was created around human spaceflight. The first intention was to uh, develop what became as Project Mercury. So it was created with that specific objective from the beginning historically. Uh, I think one of the most visible projects of NASA is everything related uh, with human spaceflight. Uh, and as such, uh, I'll put more emphasis into a sustainable human space program uh, beyond the lower orbit, which is the place that we have been around for the last uh, almost 50 years, and, and focus on longer duration missions and cis uh, lunar space and, is possible, uh, Mars. Of course, we're talking of a large budget, but uh, 
I won't take care of that. I will just uh, take care of spending it. <laughs> Joan Johnson Fries, what about you? If you were put in charge of, of NASA's entire budget or the entire Chinese space budget, we don't know exactly how big that budget is, uh, what would be your top priority? Well, I'm afraid it would have to be climate change research. Um, so I'm not the, not necessarily exploration. But in terms of exploration, I agree that cislunar would be would be a good goal. If you're going to go back to the moon, do it for a moon colony or or set up an infrastructure program to go on. But I'm not sure that having a location is always necessary. We seem to do that. We seem to need to have a where are we going instead of what technology are we developing. And I would want to put some serious thought into whether having a destination is the right approach. That's very interesting. Hmm. Doug Millard, what about you? If you were suddenly put in, t- in charge of uh, NASA's budget, $21.5 billion, uh, where would you focus it? Oh, I'd have to listen to my advisors. Um I have to admit, Mars does beckon, uh, notwithstanding all the constraints and challenges. I do feel that if we go to all the trouble and expense of launching human beings into Earth orbit, we're just going round and round and round. Yes, we're learning a lot more about how the human frame and minds can cope with long duration space flight. But I think you could argue that if we're going to do that, we do need to be going somewhere. Uh, whether it's back to the moon, which you could say is part of the Earth system, or whether it's the longer uh, and m- much harder challenge of Mars, then I-, I think there does need to be that somewhere, but also perhaps more honesty that this is going to take a long time. Alexandra Lusk. I would like to go back. I would like to see us going back to the moon. I would invest in a much more diverse sort of uh, project that includes uh, people from from many subcultural backgrounds. And of course, we've never had a woman on the moon, although Fritz Lang, the filmmaker, sent one up in the 1920s uh, in his fictional account, of course. So and I'd like it to be an international project. So not just, you know, led by one country. And uh, and also send more send more scientists up there because Harrison Schmidt was the only scientist, right? Mm. Um, so yes, a wider range of people, and I, I believe there's much much more to find out about the moon, and then also work with the environmental movement, of course, and see how it can help us. Okay, a very green, inclusive note to end this episode of The Real Story. Thanks to our guests, Alexandra Lusk, Doug Millard, Joan Johnson Fries, and Pablo Dillion. If you'd like to listen to the programme again or any other from the archive, you can listen back online by searching for BBC The Real Story. If you liked this week's programme, make sure you never miss another edition and subscribe to our podcast. You can find us simply by searching for The Real Story in your podcast app. And we'd love to hear your thoughts on the programme. You can email us at therealstory at bbc.co.uk. From me, Celia Hatton and the team, that's The Real Story for this week. Thanks for listening.